Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Would you open your Bibles with me? We're going to the very end of the book. Uh, Revelation chapter 4 is where we are going to be today. Um, We've been in a series throughout this year studying Daniel and Revelation. Daniel and Revelation are two books that kind of go hand in hand because they have a similar type of literature, a genre. They they have this what is called apocalyptic, you know, kind of crazy pictures and and, and, um, analogies and and all this kind of stuff. Revelation actually... Actually, it refers to the, the, the revealing. It, it comes from this Greek word, apocalypsis, which means to reveal. And Revelation is revealing things that are, John says, and things that will take place. And so much of the book of Revelation has a future um, aspect of fulfillment to it. And we're going to be looking over the next several weeks here. We're going to finish up uh, Revelation 4 going all the way through the end. So if you want any to go back and review or you want to go back and study the book of Daniel, which has some ties to Revelation, or you want to jump into the letters to the seven churches, uh, we've been doing those throughout this year. Go to our, our YouTube page, go to our da- your podcast downloads on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can download all that stuff there. You can kind of catch up with us and study any one of those in greater detail. But we're going to pick it up here today in Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to take this all the way to the end with just a brief couple weeks break for the thing we like to call Christmas. Uh, God willing, we will finish this in early January. But we have a lot of great text ahead of us. We have a lot of hard text ahead of us. Not, not hard even in terms of what does that mean, but hard just at looking. Looking at God's judgment on the world for sin, and yet the threat of God's redemption in the middle of it all. There's going to be some good studies ahead of us. And Revelation 4 and 5 are a great place to begin. And so would you pray with me as we begin today? Our, our Father in heaven, we just thank you. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you, God, that in the midst of a crazy world, you are good. We thank you that in the midst of a world that that is filled with brokenness, uh, sometimes filled with despair and and filled with all all sorts of paths that take us away from you, God, that you pursue us that you meet us where we are at. And even, God, today is a moment for us to be reminded of how much you love us. Your word says that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might have new life through faith in Jesus. God, I thank you that that new life is something we don't just look forward to, we experience now. Fathers, we open these words of Scripture. I pray that you would speak to us. Pray that your Holy Spirit would help make plain the things that are there. Lord, be our teacher today as we set our hearts and our minds toward you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 4 and 5. Um, would you stand with me? 
We're going to read this together. <clears throat> Revelation 4 and 5. Revelation chapter 4 says this. After these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion and the second like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give honor and glory and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they were existed and they were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one having a harp. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood people, people from every tribe and tongue and a people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and of the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the sea and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, let it be so. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Father, your words given to us through the Apostle John, they proclaim a realm of worship so great, so grand. Father, may what is being done in heaven right now to bring glory to your name be done on earth through us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Please be seated. I feel like after reading that, we could just go home, right? It just, oh my word. John here is invited into a vision of the Lord. He's invited into a different place, into a different way of looking at time around the throne room of God. For years and years, there's been a war of kingdoms on this earth. One of the kingdoms that we studied several months ago as we went through the book of Daniel was this kingdom of um, of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was, was the Assyrian Babylonian, well, he, he's a Babylonian king who took over from the Assyrians and, and he reigned over all the earth. And as, if you remember, we studied through the book of Daniel and we come to Daniel chapter four and uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a bit of a, a pride complex like many rulers do. And he said, basically one day he comes out onto his, his, his deck and he had this amazing palace and these amazing gardens, unlike anything you've probably ever seen especially at that known time of the world. And he comes out there and he says, look at the things I have made. And God had told him a year prior, don't think you've experienced this or you've come at this or you have attained this by your own strength. And God immediately humbles him, makes him like a beast of the field and basically sends him into exile for a series of years until Nebuchadnezzar comes to this acknowledgement of the truth that there is no God except Yahweh. No God except Yahweh. Now, ruler after ruler from before that time to our present time, rulers of kingdoms, rulers of countries, presidents, foreign leaders, dignitaries, same story goes on and on and on. Some of them bend the knee and they say, only the Lord brought me here. Others of them stand in their own pride and they say, look at what my hands have created. John is given a glimpse into the throne room of God and it is meant, meant to humble him in all the best ways. Because as we get ready to open up 
the study of the seals and the bowls and the trumpets and all the last things that come through the teaching of Revelation. John is given this picture that there is only one who is worthy. Only one who is worthy. And here's why they're worthy. God is worthy because he created all things and because he redeemed all things. That's what makes him worthy. I think God wants John to have his mind and his heart set on what is right and what is true. Because as we open these pages and we go throughout the next several things, he wants him never to forget beyond what we can see here, beyond our popular news headlines, beyond what's happening in our city, in our state, or even in our homes. There is one who is seated on the throne in heaven. And there's people gathered around him. There's creatures and there's elders. And day and night they say, you are holy. You are holy. You are holy. Which is the Hebrew way. comes from Isaiah chapter 6. It's the Hebrew way of saying, you are so incredibly holy, exclamation mark, ad infinitum. Right? They didn't have exclamation marks, so they just go, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. it's a way to write to the people that John is writing to and say, you know everything that's messed up in your world? It will be made right by the one who is true, the one who is righteous, the one who is holy, and the one who is good. I told you several weeks ago, Revelation was written, um, Daniel Green puts it this way, he says it's written to a people in need of faith and encouragement. And as we studied through the seven letters to the seven churches, we saw that every church there struggles with something slightly different. Some of them struggle with um, heresy and false teaching in their midst. Some of them struggle because they've lost their first love. Some of them struggle because they're facing persecution. The story of every one of those churches is different. I think it's written to specific churches, but it's also a circular letter as is Revelation. The rest of this book is going to these seven churches of Asia Minor and the people who are in them and around them. And he's writing this book to be an encouragement, basically saying wherever you're at, know that I'm there with you, know that it will not stay that same. And here, let me give you a glimpse into what is to come. For people in need of faith and encouragement during difficult times, This picture of the throne room of God is set to go, oh, it will one day be okay. Now, when we talk about the structure of the book of Revelation, this is a little bit of review. Um, If you go to Revelation chapter 1 and you look at verse 19, it gives us, I believe, the structure of Revelation. Here's what it says in that context, if I can open my Bible to the right page here. It says... Um, chapter 1, verse 19. Then write the things which you have seen. Okay, so he's writing about the things that he's going to see throughout this vision and this experience with the Lord um, in writing Revelation. Write the things which are, referring to the things which are currently happening within his local context, hence the seven churches, uh, and what he's writing to those churches in chapters 2 and 3. But then it says this. And then um, the things which will take place after these things. 
So after these things, the next time we see that particular Greek phrase is in chapter 4. We read it today. It says in chapter 4, verse 1, after these things. So he's already been talking about the things which are. Now he's shifting to the things which are to come. And when he comes to chapters 4 and 5, he's giving us a picture of something that is present already in the throne room of God. But something that is not fully present in its fullness here on earth. And so there's a little bit of already but not yet going on here. And as he opens up into chapter 6, which we'll look at next week, he's going, and here are the things which are going to come here on this earth that have not even happened in the heavenlies yet. Um, So chapter 4, verse 1, gives us the structure. After these things, he says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard, the voice that was like a trumpet speaking with me, says, come up here and I will show you the things that must take place after these things. This is the same voice that speaks to him in chapter 1 with a voice like a trumpet. And I could have brought my trumpet in here and just blown it for you, but I I should have done that perhaps. But when you think about a trumpet, you think something that calls you to attention, something that calls you to focus, something that calls you to something significant is about to happen. And for John, he's taken, he's on the island of Patmos, and in some way through vision or otherwise, he experiences... A vision, kind of like Ezekiel experienced in Ezekiel chapter 1. Kind of like Isaiah experienced in seeing the throne room of God in Isaiah chapter 6. He gets this picture into the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God. Now, when he sees this, <clears throat> what's interesting is, is a courtroom or a throne room is described. One um, one scholar um, talks about this image of an imperial ceremonial court. Th- th- this is a throne room that exists in the heavenlies, outside the bounds of time, outside the bounds of the human space here on this earth. But it's something that John was semi-familiar with. Because in the courts of his day, you would have Greco-Roman kings who considered themselves to be divine. People like um, Caesar like Nero, Domitian, Augustus, all these different people who played Caesar, they considered themselves to be divine. And their actual physical courtrooms on the earth were often artistically expressed in terms of being cosmic. And so if you looked at an ancient court, you would see that there's a throne and there's people around the throne and there's other things going around the throne. You kind, of, you kind of zoom into the center and you just kind of back up and you take it all in. And that's kind of how John writes this. He zooms into the center of the throne room of God and then he backs it out from there. There's attendants. You know, the attendants that John records in the heavenly court are four beasts around the throne and 24 elders. And eventually you have myriads of angels gathered around all singing. Actually, in the ancient period, attendants would sing hymns of worship to the the divine king. So what goes on in earth kind of starts to mirror a little bit of what's in heaven, although very imperfectly. Also, in earthly courts, a king would dispense justice over his empire. And justice was often symbolized by a scroll. A scroll that contained the words of the king to a people or to a situation to, to say, here's what I decree to have done. We get this picture in the heavenlies. We get this picture, of course, in the ancient period. 
These suggestions, one writer says, along with the competing claims for all the respective deities throughout Revelation between John and this imperial cult of the first century, suggest that there are two cultures clashing in the imagery employed in Revelation. But there's only one court that reigns above all. And that's the court of Yahweh. These cultures still clash today. The kingdoms of this world stand against the kingdom, the kingdom of God in values, in authority, in worth. The courts of this world fight to establish significance, dominance, and justice. But even on their best day, they can only dimly reflect the glory and power of the Lord. So what we experience, even in courts in the land here, is just a dim reflection of the holy power of a God Not just a God who is above all, but a God who comes to his people because of his great love. So we come to this phrase here. You write what is seen, what will take place, or sorry, write what you've seen, what is and what will take place after this. Here's an ancient throne. This is King Tutankhamun's throne from the 14th century BCE. You can just imagine how majestic this is, overlaid in gold with a bunch of inlays in it. And as John describes the throne room of God, he gives all these things. And and I have to feel like he's going, man, how do I describe what I'm seeing? Because everything is like, and I saw this, and it was like this, and it was like this, and it was like this. He's trying to just give pictures to what we can understand on earth to describe the majestic glory of God. But here we have the throne, the four creatures, the 24 elders, and the host of myriad of angels. Things we, that John describes are things like jasper. Things like carnelian. He describes this rainbow that's kind of like an emerald to try and describe what's going on in the throne room of God. He writes about things like elders. And if you look at this fresco from the ancient period, there's there's elders on the outsides of it as they gather around the lamb that was slain in the top part of the picture. Around all these things, John wants his hearers to know, wow, this is an incredible picture. This is an overwhelming image that God is ruling and reigning. It's reminiscent of the great hymn, um, I sing the mighty power of God that makes the mountains rise. It spreads the flowing seas abroad and builds the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. We, we get a picture of God in Revelation chapter 4 that is God as creator. Last night was the harvest moon. I didn't see it last night, but the night before, it was almost a perfectly full moon as it got ready for last night. There's something about being out in the things that God has made that just makes me go, wow. To take away from the artificial light created by man and to look at the simple, pure beauty of sand and of mountains, of snow, I know, right? Snow. Uh, Of rain, of lightning. Our God is a creative God. John goes on from trying to describe what he sees with this throne 
He goes in verse four, I, around the throne were 24 thrones. I saw 24 elders <coughs> clothed in white garments with golden crowns on her head. The word he uses for crowns here is a word that refers, uh, that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to the crown that um, someone who's competing in something would win at the end of a race. So you've got these elders gathered around with, with, with crowns from the ancient period. That's laid with gold, by the way. That's like, that's, that's not cheap. Um, but, but, but it's showing their dignity. It's showing their honor. And, and we get this picture in verse 10 about how these 24 elders, even with the honor given to them and they're around the throne, they actually are so in awe of the one who is seated on the throne that they take their, their, their um, crowns. They take their crowns and they throw them at the feet of the one who is there. We get this picture of, of four beasts that, that is described here. But notice more importantly than what they are, the lion, the calf, the face like a man and an eagle. Um, notice what they never cease saying. Holy, holy, holy. Kadosh is the Hebrew word for holy here. Agios is the Greek word for holy. It means to be distinct. It means that there's no one like God. He's distinct in everything he does. Who was and who is and who is to come. It's a phrase that plays off of Moses' experience with God in Exodus chapter 3. Or Isaiah's experience with God in, in Isaiah chapter 6 that just undoes him. The, the elders, <clears throat> they gather around, they worship the eternal God, giving him glory and power and honor due his name. All that is important in heaven is him. All attention in heaven is pointed on him. All worth is pointed on him. In fact, th th that's what they cry out. They say this in verse 11, the, the elders cast their crowns before the throne. And there's already been glory and honor and value given to the one on the throne. But they say, worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. But notice why. Because or for you created all things. Because of your will, they existed and they were created. When, when, the, when the elders give God worship, they're recognizing not only is he just powerful, but he's creative. Do you know, do you know, every single one of you listening to my voice today was created by God? Do you know that? Every single one of you was formed and fashioned by the hands of a God who loves you. He created you with intention. He created you with purpose. He created you with worth and dignity. Genesis teaches us that we, being man, man and woman, male and female, we are made in the image of God. The world is filled, filled with a lot of things that God has created. You know, mountains, rivers, Dogs, cats, horses. It's filled with a lot of these things. But there's only one subgroup of that that reflects the image of God. Man and woman. And when he forms man and woman, he forms them with intention. He forms them with purpose. He forms them with dignity. Every human being on this earth has the image of God stamped on them. From the time they are in the womb to the time of their last breath, the image of God is stamped on them. 
It's important to remember things like this because our world does not often value humanity. Many times it doesn't value the youngest among us, those in the womb. But the scripture says, I I formed you, I knew you, I knit you together, Psalm 139 says, when you were in the womb. Every baby before they're born is loved and cherished and honored and created by God. To the end of our life, where sometimes our culture still denigrates the young, they denigrate the old. They say, well, put them in a home. Treat them as less dignity. That doesn't mean a home is bad, by the way. That may be a great place to care for them. But sometimes we can be dismissive of people, whether they're young or whether they're old, in their stage of life. God is a God who creates. For you created all things, the elders say. Worthy are you. It's good to sometimes just sit back and be reminded, I have been created by God intentionally, with purpose. Because starting there, then begins the conversation of, if I have been created by God, what does that mean for my life? It means God created me to worship. It means God created me to reflect his glory. It means that God created me to steward his creation. It's that God created me for relationship and he created you for all those things as well and more. God is a creative God. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will, they existed and they were created. Colossians 1 is a great place to go if you want to find out another place of where where that word created is used. Psalm 101 verse 19 um, says that we are created to praise Yahweh. So the elders come at the end of chapter 4 and they're saying, God, you are worthy because you created. But the story doesn't stop there. We get this other picture in chapter 5 where, where after looking at the one seated on the throne and the one of the spirit of God, the seven spirits of God around, um, around in, in, in burning before the throne, we get this new problem that's interjected that's part of our story in Revelation in chapter 5. Um, it starts off by um, John recording that there's a scroll. Again, I I mentioned a scroll is a way that a sovereign would administer justice to a situation or justice to a people. And on this scroll, there was written front and back and on the side, and it's sealed up with seven seals. And there's an angel who proclaims with this loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. And John is absolutely undone because the text says that there is no one on earth or heaven and under the earth. In other words, to say there's no one anywhere who can open the scroll or even look into it. So you have this vision of a God seated on the throne. He has a scroll in his hand, a scroll that looks probably something like this, that has these seals on top of it. And, and part of what would be done is if you had the authority to open the scroll, you could break back that piece of clay or that piece of wax. But once you broke it, you knew it was broken because it was signed with the signet ring of, uh, of, a, of a sovereign or of a king. And John is going, there is no one here who can open the scroll. And it actually says he's crying greatly because no one was found worthy 
to open it or to break it. <clears throat> and I love it because it's almost like, it's very direct. After John has that, verse 5, it says, One of the elders comes to me and he says, stop crying. Just, just stop. Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome and he can break the scroll. So not only is God a, a creator, God is a redeemer. He is one who has overcome. How has he overcome? Verse 6 says, I saw in the midst of the throne, in the creatures, in the midst of the elders, a lamb. A lamb standing as if slain. Now when you think about power, you don't think about lambs. When you think about power, you think about lions. Ones who have the ability to roar and to pounce and to judge. But what qualifies the lamb who is slain was that in humility and in a lowering of himself, Philippians 2 talks about this, the Messiah Jesus came to this earth to be a lamb. And not just in a lamb in a metaphorical sense, well, kind of in a metaphorical sense, but, but, but in a real reality sense. Because he came and he lived and he taught and he lived a sinless, perfect life. And then one Passover on Lamb Selection Day, he comes into Jerusalem. He's inspected by the courtrooms of the high priest. He's inspected by Pilate. And they're saying there's no sin in him. And that lamb, the Messiah Jesus, goes and gives his life as a ransom for many. He goes that his blood might be shed in order to pay for sin. See, the throne of heaven is consumed with blessing God and honoring God because he created them. But they're also consumed with the lamb because the lamb has authority to open the scroll. And the reason he has the authority to open the scroll um, <coughs> is found in this new song that is noted in verse 9 of chapter 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because... You were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. In other words, it didn't cost nothing. It cost everything. With your blood, what did he purchase? He purchased people. Just Jews? No, people from every tribe and language and tongue and people and nation. He purchases. In other words, he redeems. He, he makes one worthy who could not make one himself worthy. He steps into the story of humanity to say, here's what I have done for you. So there's this problem in heaven, but the problem is solved where John thinks there's no one here who's worthy. <clears throat> there's no one here who can open these judgments. There's no one here who can set all the wrong in the world right. Who can look at the people who have been abused and say, there will be godly justice for that. Who can look at the people who have been diminished and demeaned by the people around them to say, there will be righteous judgment for that. To look at those who have died because of anger and violence, no matter how perfect our systems on earth may be, 
There is one who comes to deal rightly, to deal justly, and yet to deal mercifully. He deals mercifully with those who come to the end of themselves. He deals justly with those who, like many kings and rulers of the past, have gone to their grave with a hand in the air saying, I am victorious. The scroll can be opened because there's a lamb who was slain. To the marginalized, to the rejected, to the persecuted, to the alone, there's a writing of all the human injustice done on earth. Now, the people of God, we we see this in a particular light, but even those who don't have a relationship with God, we have oftentimes this innate sense of the need for justice. There's wrong, there's abuse, there's foul play, there's misconduct, there's cancer, there's being taken advantage of. Sometimes the world's authorities act in justice, but many times not. And the scroll at the end of the age will be the way for God to set all those things right. It's not a triumph of look at me. It's a triumph of holiness over sin. It's a judgment of stamping out all the things which bring suffering and pain to our existence. The Messiah Jesus is worthy here. He's worthy. He's a line that comes from the tribe of Judah. This stems from Genesis 49, where it says, Judah's a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches, he lies down like a lion or lioness who dares to rouse him. And then in verse 10, it says, the scepter, in other words, the ability to rule will not depart from Judah. Now, God is giving this prophecy many years before to the Jewish people early in their stage of infancy infancy as a nation. But he says the scepter is not going to depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He talks about in the next phrase of the root of David, that this one who would come and who would rule and who would reign would be of the tribe of David. On that day, the root of Jesse, that's, that's David, that, that's, that's all part of this, <coughs> will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. And what is the sign or what is the response of the people of God here? The response is, you are Worthy. You are worthy. The word worthy in Greek means, it's the word axios. Say axios. Axios. It's a fun word. Uh, It means worthy. It means comparable. It means of comparable value. It means worthily. It it means that you have so much um, within you that is inherently worthwhile, worth time, worth energy, worth focus, because God, God is, is, none, is like none other. Uh, it, it has this idea of value to it. And these, this is what the throngs around the throne declare, you're worthy. There's no one that can compare to you. You have incomparable value. We worthily, we give our attention, we give our lives, we give our focus to the one who sits on the throne. 
And they gather around. <coughs> Notice what it says here. The voice of many angels in verse 11. Around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. In other words, what he's saying is you can't even begin to count how many people are here. And what are they doing? They're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and under the sea. In other words, he's saying everything that you can ever imagine. Um, and to the lamb, oh, sorry, uh, do, 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 is on the sea. And all the things in them I heard saying, to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and power and might forever and ever. Philippians 2 talks about how one day, how one day, Everyone, every knee, it says, will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For those of us who are followers of Jesus here today, we've come to a point in our life where we acknowledge God as creator. But even more than that, we acknowledge God, we acknowledge the Messiah Jesus as redeemer. The, the story of worthy is the lamb who was slain, that song that repeats in the throne room of heaven, that song that goes on and on and on is a song that tells our story. It, it's a song that proclaims, man, in my own waywardness, in my own pride, in my own sin, there's no way I could be made right with God. But there is one way, and that's through the blood. There's one way, and that's through trusting that Jesus' atonement for my sins is sufficient. He is worthy because he was slain, and he purchased people for God with his blood. And so the heavenlies proclaim, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb. It's this ongoing refrain that comprises so much of their existence. But look at verse 14. The four living creatures, they kept saying, amen. Let it be so. I agree with that. They're basically saying, yep, that is true. That is right. The one who created me, the one who redeemed me, he is worthy. He is worthy. Worthy is the lamb. Notice what the elders do. They fell down and they worshiped. The word worship is the word proskuneo. Proskuneo. And it means to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence, one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. Proskuneo is a word that was used or an action that was used and typically reserved for a deified king, if you were the Persians, or, or a divine one, if you were the Greeks. The picture here at the end of the book of Revelation is here all creation bows down in worship to the only one who's deserving of it because of his creative intentionality in the lives of the creation, but even more so in the lives of his image bearers. Not just his creative power though, his redemptive action. Like I said, like I could have read chapter four and chapter five and just let it be what it was because you read that and you go, what do I do with that? But say, oh, worthy, worthy, worthy. I want to leave you with two things. The first one is this. What, what do you do with a passage like this? 
if you're a follower of Jesus, it marks a song that should grow from the very core of our being. It marks a song that should describe an attitude and a way of life. When we cry, worthy is the lamb, we're constantly reminded of what Christ has done for us and what Christ can do for our world. The song for us as believers should be, God, you're worthy. God, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my sin, God, you are worthy. God, you are enough for it. God, I depend upon you. I submit to you. I yield to you because you're worthy. God, my identity is found in you because I'm created by you and I'm created for you and I'm created to praise you. The song should be for the believer, God, you are worthy. Let me just say, the more we sing the song, worthy is the lamb in our lives, the more the other things that we experience in this world have the right position that they should have. When, when we look at our world right here in light of eternity, we say worthy is the lamb. We're reminded, God, this isn't the end. The story's not final. You are still on the throne. You are still good. I can still trust you. Not because of me, but because of you. That's the one way we need to apply worthy as the lamb. The story of our lives and our marriages and our families should be, oh, in the midst of this, I gotta get my eyes on the lamb. I gotta get my eyes on the one who is seated on the throne that I might walk in light of him and with him. Second way to apply this is that you may not be a follower of Jesus here today, or you may have dear friends and dear family in your life who are not followers of Jesus. May I just say, like I said a couple minutes ago, you were created by God intentionally and with purpose. You were created in order to worship and to glorify the one who stamped his image on you. Every person is an image bearer because they're made in the image of God. Not every person is a child of the king, but that's the invitation. That's why Jesus came because he didn't want a people who were severed from him by sin to be severed forever. He wants and he invites and he implores you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to come to the end of yourself and say, God, I am a sinner, but worthy is the lamb who was slain because by your blood, you ransomed and you redeemed a person, me who was far from you. When you come to that recognition and you come to that declaration of trust in the one who is worthy, he brings you his spirit to give you life in this world and life in the world to come. That's his second invitation. The invitation for the believer is to say, my life meets, needs to be directed again towards the one who is worthy. And I need to live in light of the one who is worthy. And to the person who is not a believer today, the invitation is to come to the one 
who makes you worthy through his blood. Worthy to come before him. Worthy to enter his throne. Who makes you holy. Not because of anything you do, but because of your trust and your dependence on him and in him alone. My friends, that's the message as believers we're called to carry. We're called to walk out. I don't know where you're at in your walk today. My invitation is this. God's invitation is this. Bring yourself to the one who is seated on the throne that he might work in and through you to bring glory to his name. As we shout, worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it is good to pause right now. It's good, Father, to have our, our eyes set upon you. Father, I thank you that you forgive us for all the ways in which we set our eyes differently. We set our eyes on material gain. We set our eyes on the busyness and hecticness of life. We set our eyes on work. We set our eyes on sports. We set our eyes on sin. And yet, God, we want in this moment for our eyes to once again be set upon you. We want to walk out <clears throat> of how you've created us. Created as a people. Created as a people to honor your name. Created as a people to lift up the name of Jesus. To lift up the name of the one who is the lamb who is slain, who has bought and redeemed us. Father, set our hearts and our minds again on you. And God, I pray um, for, for those who are with us, who are still kicking the tires of what faith in Jesus is. I pray that they would see the Messiah Jesus crucified and raised to life. They might yield their lives for the sake of the one who is worthy. We thank you, God. Your invitation to us is clear. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <clears throat> we trust you for that in our lives, God. Oh, Lord, our God, our King, our Father, our Redeemer, our friend. Meet us in these moments and expressions of worship as we declare your worth. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, 
We invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.